Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can find us on iTunes and on YouTube. Just search for Logical Belief Ministries. Uh, if you have any questions, um, um, words of encouragement, uh, anything like that, uh, just want to drop me a note. You can send all those to jason at logicalbelief.org. Alrighty, uh, today what we're going to do is we are going to finish up, well, maybe not finish up, but we're going to uh, make a big dent uh, into um, our series that we have been doing on creation science. I just want to continue that, uh, and I wanted to complete the book drawing. Um, it's uh, just not been working out to... Uh, to get that done with dealing with uh, some of the other issues that have come up. Uh, in fact, we're going to be later on tonight having another episode, another podcast, where I'm talking again to Carl Albert from Israel Doctrine, um, uh, kind of a, one of the offshoots of the Black Hebrew Israelim, uh, Israelite movement. Uh, so... We'll be doing that tonight, uh, but I wanted to quickly uh, get another episode out here, and I wanted to get this book drawing done. Uh, we've had three people uh, post reviews, uh, so I want to get this book out to one of them. So I wanted to quickly do that here at the beginning of the show uh, before we jump into our presentation for today, uh, is I wanted to do this drawing. So I'm going to go ahead and transition here. Um, we're going to use random.org here. Let's uh, go ahead and zoom in here so you guys can see this. Uh, let's go ahead and drag this down. Okay, so we had um, three people post uh, feedback um, on the iTunes channel. Uh, there was an ACL Godspeed, a Sarah 77LE, and an I. I brew ha ha. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and read the reviews, and um, and then we're going to go ahead and throw uh, these three into random.org, and we're going to see which one of you guys are the winner of the ultimate proof of creation, if I can hold it up to the camera there. So let's uh, go ahead and pull up those reviews. Da, da, da. Okay, here we go. Okay, so the first one was from ACL Godspeed. And I think I know who this one is, but <laughs> I'll read his review. Um, he wrote uh, on iTunes, he wrote, uh, This podcast is an interesting mix of apologetics and theology. It will consistently leave you with something to chew on during the week. Check it out. That's ACL Godspeed. Uh, so he's going to be number one uh, on the uh, list here. Uh, then we have uh, Sarah77LE. Let's uh, expand that there. It says, I really appreciate Jason Meltz's con contribution to the world of Reformed apologetics. Logical Belief Ministries podcast and YouTube videos provide foundational apologetics and theology that both the novice and seasoned believer will benefit from. Jason's clear and well-organized organized presentations make it easier to learn about complex theological concepts. I highly recommend adding this podcast to your arsenal for the defense of the faith. So, Sarah, thank you for that. You are going to be in the drawing. And then we have I Brew Ha Ha <laughs> um, was the last one. He wrote, um, let's see here, if I can pull up the entire review. Seems like it's not displaying here. 
let's try this. This is rather interesting. Let's search here. Looks like I have to pull it back up. Uh, if I expanded the one review, it looks like it doesn't allow me to expand another review. That's kind of interesting. Um, okay, so I I brew haha wrote. Um, the host is clear thinking and reasonable in his discussions of theology and his interactions with unbelievers. I was impressed with his presuppositional discussion with an atheist that was more patient than I could have managed and not just an echo of Seid and Bergenkate. Well, I don't want to put uh, Seid does a great job, um, so I don't want to put him down at all. But uh, it says I learned uh, quite a bit from his lessons on Anabaptists, even though I was once one myself and a leader in a Mennonite church plant. I will keep listening. All righty. Well, that's uh, that's really encouraging uh, to know that there was, um, uh, you know, one of, as as uh, those of you that listen to Kevin and I's episodes on the Anabaptists is uh, we want to be able to reach out to uh, those in those particular groups with the true gospel. Not that there aren't uh, saved people, as we mentioned, within those groups, but uh, many of them do not preach the true gospel of grace and uh, have a uh, works-oriented um, salvation uh, message, which is not a message of true salvation. So we want to be able to reach out to those. So that's great. Uh, thank you, uh, all three of you. You guys are up for the drawing. So what I'm going to do here, as you can see, I've got your names in a spreadsheet right here, one, two, and three. And so uh, those, uh, ACL Godspeed, you're number one, Sarah, 77LE, you're two, and I brew ha ha is three. So I'm going to throw you guys here into random.org. I'm going to set the numbers one to three. We're going to zoom in so everybody can see uh, who the winner is. So let's hit generate. And looks like number three won. I brew ha ha. Okay, so if you're I brew ha ha, go ahead and email me. Send me an email, just letting me know that's you. Uh, send me your uh, your address. I'll give you a week uh, to do that. And um, that way, you can make sure you get the podcast. You hear this, and you can uh, send me if you send me your address. I will send you out. Uh, send out to you the ultimate proof of creation. I hope that's enjoyable to you. Um, if uh, it goes past a week and I don't hear uh, from the first winner, uh, we'll just do this again and uh, see who will get the books. So, alrighty, thanks for that. Hopefully, that's uh, of benefit to someone. So, uh, as uh, promised, uh, today we're going to pull up my presentation. Uh, we're going to do a presentation on continuing to do it on creation science. And uh, as I have uh, mentioned uh, many times before, I do not believe the Bible is true because the scientific evidence matches up to it. Um, we could not even examine uh, science uh, and even have um, the scientific method and have the ability to examine uh the the world nature and uh, the physical realm around us if the Bible were not true the Bible provides a foundation in order for us to even be able to do science so I do not believe the Bible is true 
because the scientific evidence um, makes the Bible the most probable worldview. No, um, the Bible is true because God has spoken, and without relying upon his revealed truth, uh, we could not even prove anything at all. Um, and so uh, all of us as creatures um, are finite. We do not have omniscience. We do not know all things. And we could not know anything for certain uh, unless our Creator uh, has reached out to us and has given us revelation so that we can know things to be certain. And uh, all human beings, whether they've read the Bible or not, do know things to be certainly true. So God has reached out to them and to all of us and revealed things to us that are necessary for us to exist within his creation. And uh, this is all confirmed within the Bible itself. Uh, and the Bible is the foundation for um, uh, any true knowledge and being able to even define what truth itself is. We must have God's revelation. So uh, creation science is something that uh, we as Christians, uh, and me particularly, I love uh, seeing how God's creation uh, matches up to his revealed truth in his word. And it just uh, makes me even more excited about God and his word when I look into his creation. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to do the second presentation. I'm going to go ahead and pop that up. And we're going to go ahead and transition uh, the screen here uh, to the presentation. Looks like we're going to have to zoom out the screen here. Let me uh, make that adjustment. Okay, I think that should work there. Alrighty, so... Uh, today, uh, what we're going to do, this is the second episode. Uh, we call this the scientific evidence. And um, so the topics that we're going to look at today is lunar recession, uh, comets, uh, and magnetic fields. So those are the three things we're going to look at today in relation to creation science and how these things confirm the truth of God's revelation. And the first one we'll look at is uh, lunar recession. So as many of you guys may not be aware of, we are in fact losing our moon. Our moon is at present a day um, 300 and let me actually pull this up. Got a calculator here I created for this. Uh, let me drag this over. Um, is presently 384 million uh, meters uh, from the Earth. That is the current uh, location of uh, the Moon um, at its semi-major axis, and it's uh, it has a slightly elliptical orbit of the Earth. And at the semi-major axis, it is currently 384,402,000 meters uh, from the Earth. Uh, and the moon is receding from the Earth um, at about 4.4 centimeters per year. 
the moon is receding away from us. And this has been measured pretty accurately by bouncing lasers um, off uh, mirrors left on the surface of the moon by the Apollo missions to the moon. And yes, we actually did go to the moon, folks. There's no giant conspiracy. We did go to the moon. And uh, by bouncing lasers off these mirrors, we can measure the recession of the moon to be approximately 4.4 plus or minus uh, six-tenths of a centimeter uh, per year. So we're going to be using that particular recession rate in calculating where was the moon in the past in time and uh, uh, where uh, it will go in the future. So uh, what is ca what causes this uh, recession of the moon away from the earth is caused by what we refer to as tidal forces. As the moon orbits the earth, it exerts gravity upon the earth just as much as the earth exerts gravity upon the moon. And this causes our oceans, the earth's oceans, to bulge out. And this is what causes tides on the earth. Uh, we all know that we experience uh, two tides, two high tides uh, in, a, in a day. And, um, and this is caused by the gravity of the moon as the earth um, spins on its axis and rotates on its axis. Uh, underneath the moon, uh, the moon's gravity causes the oceans to bulge out. Now, what actually happens is that the earth spins faster than the moon orbits the earth. So therefore, these tidal bulges are actually out in front because the moon, with its uh, angular momentum um, as it's spinning, pulls those tidal bulges caused by the gravitational force of the moon, and it pulls it ahead of the moon's location. I'll show several uh, graphics that I created to demonstrate that here in a little bit. So it spins faster, and so these bulges are ahead of the Earth. Now, these bulges themselves contain mass, and as we know from general relativity, that mass is what creates gravity. And so the masses of these tidal bulges actually uh, pull on the moon. There is, um, there's two tidal bulges created, and the near one to the moon um, is out ahead of the moon, and it actually pulls on the moon and makes it accelerate in its orbit, and it causes also the Earth to lose uh, just a little bit of energy in its rotation also, uh, thus making our days um, a little longer uh, as we go into the future. So Earth days are getting slightly longer as we go along because of this particular moon-Earth relationship also. So at about 6,000 years ago, the moon would have been about, and this is from my own calculation with these equations I'm going to show you here in a little bit, but I threw these into an Excel spreadsheet and did the calculations myself, and about 6,000 years ago, the moon would have been about 264 meters closer to the Earth. Now, uh, you cannot throw into, um, <laughs> you cannot uh, do calculations based upon 4.4 centimeters every year and just extrapolating that backwards because gravity is not linear. Um, as uh, a, a gravitational field, any field uh, disperses and becomes weaker at an inverse square. It's called the inverse square law and of the distance. 
and um, so gravity is not linear. So you can't, uh, 6,000 years ago, the moon was not receding at 4.4 centimeters, but it was receding at a greater uh, rate 6,000 years ago. And as you go back even further, the recession rate would get larger and larger, and the tidal bulges would get larger and so forth. And I'll show that here. So as we can see here, uh, we have here in our uh, presentation, you can see we have the near tidal bulge to the moon here at the top uh, that pulls on the uh, the moon and pulls it forward, accelerating it, thus causing it to go out further in its orbit. Um, <clears throat> and this dipole separation right here, uh, going through the this would be um, how we would measure the angle theta right here with these. Uh, uh, different radiuses here for the Earth's um, or for the moon's orbit around the Earth. And this is roughly proportional to 1 over r cubed, and r being the Earth-moon distance right here. And so as the uh, uh, Earth and moon relationship goes back in time, uh, when the moon would have been closer to the earth, the tidal bulges would have been greater because the closer the moon gets to the earth, the, the greater its gravitational forces upon the earth, thus causing the tidal bulges to be greater. But at the same time, this is going to make the acceleration of the moon also greater uh, due to the increased mass in the tidal bulge. Uh, it... Uh, it transfers angular momentum and kinetic energy to the moon here, causing it to accelerate uh, in its recession rate. So in the past, the recession rate of the moon from the Earth would have been greater. It would have not been linear. It would have been greater. So that is how we have to do our calculations when, um, when calculating where it would have been in the past. So... Um, I will post uh, the particular uh, articles on the show notes of those of you who are actually interested more in the math for this. Uh, there's several different, uh, there's another video I'm going to go ahead and share in the show notes because uh, I'm not going to get deep into that. I'm not a mathematician myself. I just dabble in these things. Um, and, uh, and I'll also link, uh, the Institute of Creation Research has a great article out that details some of this. So I'll link some of those articles for those of you that want to get into this a little deeper. Uh, that is absolutely fine. And I will link those and you can take a look at those. So uh, the first equation uh, that we look at here is is the, re uh, the one for the recession rate of the moon. And uh, the R here in this um, in this equation is uh, the semi-major axis of the moon's orbit above the Earth. And this here is just time uh, over time. So uh, uh, that over time is the recession rate of the moon, and, and that is equal to um, k over uh, r to the power of 6, to the 6th power. Um, and k here is a proportionality constant, which uh, k is equal to... Um, R to the six times the current times the recession rate, and for us it's four point four centimeters. So what we do to compute the moon's recession uh, time to its present orbit, we have to integrate this first equation um, over the time interval zero to t 
to present time, the moon's distance from the Earth then increases from what we call the Roche limit, which is R0 here in this lower equation here, to its present orbit at distance R right here. And what the Roche limit is, is this is the limit, uh, and I'll show you guys the equation here for the Roche limit to calculate the Roche limit uh, uh, for the Earth. Uh, in particular down here is the equation to calculate R0 here for this uh, middle equation right here, is this here is the Roche limit equation. And uh, this includes the mass of the, the top here uh, is the, the mass of the Earth, and here is the mass of the Moon. So the mass of the Earth over the mass of the Moon. Um, the Roche limit is the limit to where when an object is held together only by its own gravity, uh, it is the place where the, the 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 mass of the object that it orbits. So you have the moon orbiting the Earth, and there is a balancing point within this orbital radius that as it gets closer and closer to the Earth, it meets what's called the Roche limit. And this is where the Earth's pull of gravity becomes equal to the gravity holding the moon together. So as it goes past the Roche limit, uh, something like the moon would start to disintegrate because the Earth's gravity then becomes greater than the gravity holding that mass together. And so the Roche limit is the limit to which a body can orbit a larger body before the larger body's gravity pulls it apart. And, for example, Saturn would be an example of... Uh, having moons and objects that orbited uh, that were within the Roche limits, so they disintegrated and they became rings um, around uh, that particular planet. So that's what the Roche limit is. So the Roche limit is a limiting factor to how close the moon could have been at the Earth. So that's where we are doing our calculations from. So um, in calculating from the Roche limit to the present uh, 384 million meters of where the moon currently um, orbits the Earth, we can, using the current recession rate and using that proportionality constant K, we can calculate, and if any of you guys are inter interested, I can, I can send you the Excel spreadsheet. I threw these equations into, and you can see um, how I did the calculations. These are actually my own calculations. Um, so... Uh, I compared them to to see if I was coming out with the same numbers as uh, as what they were over there at ICR and Jason Lyell did, and they came out very close. So um, pretty well, um, pretty well on here. So um, with the present day recession rate, I'm going to update my calculator here so I got the same numbers I have on the screen here at the uh, uh, present-day recession rate of 4.4 centimeters per year, the moon would have been at the Roche limit. So in other words, at, at the location of where it would have disintegrated due to the gravity of the Earth being greater than the gravity that holds it together at 1.2 billion years ago. So this becomes a limiting factor to how old the Earth-Moon relationship can be. And if we... Uh, take the the error bars, the the point uh, six centimeters of error that are um, that are within our measurement of uh, the Earth Moon recession at present day, and we take it at the at the 
the lowest recession rate, which would be 3.8 centimeters per year. And if you throw that into the calculator and throw that into uh, through the equations, you come out to a the Earth, um, the moon would have been at the Roche limit at 1.4 billion years ago. So the evolutionary time scale of the Earth system, Earth-Moon system being 4.5 billion years old, is simply not possible. It is limited by this, um, by this, uh, uh, the recession rate of the current Earth-Moon uh, relationship, and so that becomes a major problem. Now, there's there have been different propositions put out there to try to resolve these issues from an evolutionary time scale. Uh, but really, they ju they just don't work. And at the best, you still come out to less than two billion years. Uh, some will put in, try to put in that the continents have prevented um, uh, these tidal bulges, which would have reduced the recession rate uh, due to um, uh, the recession rate obviously being called by the tidal bulges in the oceans. So depending on where you put the continents, you could block those tidal bulges and then thus reduce the recession rate. But it's still, even with those particular calculations, um, you you still do not get um, recession. Uh, you you don't get an Earth uh, Moon uh, relationship uh, back to four point billion years. Not even close. And so, um, even the lowest possible recession rate of the Earth Moon relationship could only be within thirty two percent of the current evolutionary time scale for the age of the Earth. So. At 1.4 billion years, this is only 32% of the required time for the Earth-Moon relationship. So what we're not saying uh, when uh, creation scientists say that the Earth-Moon relationship uh, uh, says uh, prevents it from being 4.5 billion years, we're not saying that the Earth-Moon relationship is 1.2 billion years old. We're saying that this is a limiting factor. The Earth-Moon relationship could not possibly be older than this. And so we're going to look at some other uh, things today that um, will even limit the Earth's uh, age to even uh, less than the 1.2 the Earth-Moon uh, relationship uh, limits the Earth. And we had talked about uh, carbon-14 um, in a previous episode on creation science. And carbon-14, as as uh, when we discuss the half-life of carbon-14 and how that limits uh, because of the fact that we find carbon-14 in things like diamonds, which evolutionary timescales put to be billions of years old, and we still find carbon-14 in them, and carbon-14 could not last. If the entire mass of the Earth, and I showed you guys the calculations on that in the last um, episode I did on creation science. The entire mass of the Earth was carbon-14. There would be none left. It would have all decayed back to nitrogen within one million years. So that is a limiting factor. In the same way, the Earth-Moon relationship here is a limiting factor to how old uh, the Earth actually can be. So the next thing we want to look at is comets. Comets are balls of uh, ice and dirt that orbit the Sun with a highly eccentric... Uh, Orbits, in other words, they're very elliptical. Uh, so a comet goes way out into the far reaches of the solar system and then comes in very close um, uh, to the uh, to the sun as it orbits the sun. And um, as comets approach the sun, they develop tails, 
which go away from the sun. And these tails are vaporized material uh, being swept away from the comet by solar wind and radiation. <clears throat> so what what's going on here is the comets are continually losing material as they orbit close to the sun. Um, so the, the close point of this highly eccentric orbit is called the perihelion, and we have the aphelion being the far distant end of this highly eccentric orbit. And so we have a comet here, as it's approaching the sun, it is losing material and it's being swept off into space. And what happens is often these comets will disintegrate. They will fall apart uh, as they get close to um, the sun. Uh, some might only last one pass close to the sun, and that's it. They're gone. Uh, some will make multiple passes, and they will lose more material until they're gone. And because of this, um, even um, secular scientists will acknowledge that a typical comet can only er orbit the sun uh, at the most, and this is at the most for 100,000 years, most or even around 10,000 years, is about all that a comet can last before it disintegrates. And we constantly see comets disintegrating, and sometimes as they go around the sun, we see them go behind the sun, we don't see them come out the other side. Um, and that is because they are simply disintegrating as they get close to uh, the sun. So they cannot last more than 100,000 years. So the solar system must, this is once again another limiting factor, this is another thing that limits the Earth's age, uh, and the solar system's age, must be less than 100,000 years as there are still many comets uh, in our solar system. Now, what secular scientists will do who don't accept biblical presuppositions, um, they, they only have their naturalistic suppositions, they have to bring in a rescuing device and they will have to say that there is an Oort cloud which is an undetectable icy uh, cloud of icy masses beyond the outer reach reaches of the solar system and if you ask them for evidence for this well they'll say no it's undetectable you can't you can't detect it <laughs> so there's no way of disproving the Oort cloud um, because it's an undetectable cloud and so uh, what they'll say is that as maybe a, a passing star or some other massive body that passes close by uh, this Oort cloud, it might kick in some of these uh, icy masses into the inner solar system and create comets. And then that's where we get comets from, from this Oort cloud that we can't detect. But this is what you have to come up with in order to rescue your worldview from evidence that would appear to be contrary to it. Um, so the last thing we're going to look at today is magnetic fields. The Earth and all the planets have a magnetic field. And this is caused by electric currents that are within the planets. Um, and as all electric currents, any of you guys that are electricians or whatever, whatever medium your electrical current is passing through offers resistance to that, unless it's a superconductor. But the Earth is not a superconductor, so there is resistance to these currents as they travel through the planet and thus the, the electrical currents are going to reduce over time. And because of this, due to the resistance, the magnetic fields decay over time and reduce in strength. Uh, the magnetic field of the Earth uh, protects life on the Earth by deflecting dangerous uh, cosmic and solar radiation 
from hitting the Earth, which would destroy life if there was no barrier to it. So this magnetic field is very important. Uh, God put it there specifically to protect us from uh, cosmic and solar radiation. But this magnetic field is decaying. Uh, in fact, it is, um, we'll talk about the decay right here in a little bit, but the magnetic field has been reliably and continually measured since 1835, so we've been able to see the rate of decay uh, in measuring it for now over 100 years, well over 100 years, appro approaching um, uh, 200 years. So the what we've measured is that the Earth's magnetic field decays at about 5% every century. And the magnetic field of the Earth has a half-life of about uh, 1,400 years. So in 1,400 years, it's about half the strength. Um, in another 1,400 years, so another, in other words, in 1,400 years from now, it would be at half the strength it is today. Another 1,400 years, 2,800 years from now, it would be at a quarter of the strength that it is today. And that another 1,400 years after that, um, uh, 3,200 years, it would be... Um, or I'm sorry, 4,200 years, it would be uh, at an eighth of the strength that it is today. So that is the decay rate of the magnetic field. And you can see here a graphic here. We have the, the solar radiation, sunspots, and solar flares that are deflected by this magnetic field, this magnetic shield. And um, the solar radiation and solar wind that comes in uh, contact with this magnetic field causing it to disrupt and the bands to disrupt is what cause our auroras, for example, uh, on the Earth. Um, the aurora borealis, for example, in the northern hemisphere is caused by both the solar radiation and these magnet this magnetic field. So um, due to the decay rate of this magnetic field, 6,000 years ago the magnetic field of the Earth would have been significantly stronger than it is today, but it would have still been suitable for life. Um, however, if the Earth was older than 10,000 years, the magnetic field would have been so strong that it would have even started to cause, just 10,000 years ago, uh, would have started to cause the planet to disintegrate. It would have been so strong. And if you go back far enough, it would even cause, it would be strong enough that it would even rip the iron right out of your blood. Um, it would be that strong of a magnetic field. So this puts a limiting factor again and actually limits the Earth's age to be uh, not much over 10,000 years old. It could not possibly be uh, because of this uh, magnetic uh, decay of this magnetic field. Now, what um, secular scientists would have to argue, they have to argue in this case that... Um, that the magnetic field of the Earth is a self-generating dynamo caused by circulating core fluids that slowly decline to zero strength and then start up again with reversed orientation. The problem is this violates um, the second law of uh, thermodynamics. This is not a perpetual motion machine. When something uh, loses its energy, it just doesn't get energy back and just start back up again. Nothing does that. It, when something loses energy and once it reaches zero point energy, it doesn't just suddenly get energy again unless something energizes it and brings energy from the outside in order to um, spin it back up uh, and to be able to generate um, a magnetic field again. So this rescuing device really does not work. And so this is a definite limiting factor uh, to uh, the age of the Earth. Now, what I would recommend is there is a book by Dr. Russell Humphreys 
uh, called Starlight in Time, which he goes into uh, making predictions of the magnetic fields of the other planets, not the Earth, but the other planets uh, based upon a 6,000-year time scale. And he looks at the way that God describes creation in the books of uh, in the in the book of Genesis from God creating it from water and he uses this hypothesis that God created all the planets from water and I won't get into the details of this but I would recommend to those of you guys that are interested in this type of stuff to read that book by Dr. Russell Humphreys and with that um, taking that assumption from scripture he calculated what um, the magnetic fields would have been at creation for all the planets and then using the mass of those planets and the resistance that that causes to the electrical currents he calculated what the uh, decay rate for those magnetic fields would be and he was very very accurate on um, all the planets that he calculated this on and did this calculation based upon the electrons within H2O uh, being coherent and creating electrical current. He he made the calculation based upon an electron volt um, and those masses being entirely coherent H2O causing electrical current. God changed it into the matter that it is today and then the resistance that would cause to that electrical current and then calculated what the uh, the magnetic field would be today and his calculations were very close and the evolutionary predictions were off by orders of magnitude because they are going from a presupposition that the um, the solar uh, or that the solar system is 4.5 billion years old and so they were off by orders of magnitude while uh, Dr. Russell Humphrey's predictions for the magnetic field decays of the planets was very very close and very very accurate so I would encourage you to um, to check that out if you are interested. Um, so that is the end of that uh, topic for today. This is a little bit shorter podcast, but um, join us this evening for um, another discussion uh, with uh, Carl Albert from Israel Doctrine. We're going to be talking this evening about the deity of the Holy Spirit, so I hope you guys can join us for that. Uh, hopefully this was beneficial to you, and hopefully uh, this evening's discussion will be also. So we will see you guys uh, this evening and next week, Lord willing. And the winner there of the book, just get in touch with me, and we will get that out to you as soon as possible. God bless. Oh